daytime podcasting. Oh, Antonio. It's daytime. <laughs> Antonio, I love you, but I also love your brother, Jorge. Everyone talks like that in the daytime. Of course. They- we know. <laughs> When the sun is out. (laughs) So now that we have to cut that out. (laughs) Get it all out of your system. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 107, where we will be covering chapters 36 through 42 yes, sir. of Oathbringer. Oathbreaker. Nope. Oathmaker. Oathbringer? Yes. Oathbringer by Brandon Sanderson. Yes, we will. Next time we will be Next time we will be reading chapters 43 through 52 of Oathbringer. So how'd you like this section? Uh, yeah, I liked it. It was good. It was some some good stuff. You know, still kind of the beginning of a part, so building right. up some momentum, but some interesting reveals, so mm-hmm. some good information so far. Let's talk about our spoiler policy. Our spoiler policy is that I have read these books and Chad has not. So we will not be spoiling anything on this podcast past chapter 42 of Oathbringer. You got it. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the material you know, fully into it and start really breaking it down. I have two sort of housekeeping things that I want to bring up. Right on. So first, if you haven't, go and check out the article by Gordon Ross on our website entitled Five Fantasy Authors to Read While Waiting for Patrick Rothfuss' Doors of Stone. If you would like an opportunity to be featured on the com, you can submit your submission to admin at the duke and duchess podcast.com that's our email address or you can reach out to us on facebook or twitter as well say submission again submission that's hot (laughs) the other thing that i would like to bring up is our insidious ploy to be named the duke and duchess of our town Check us out on Twitter. The town of Bel Air has graciously offered to name us the official Duke and Duchess of the town if we can get 1,000 retweets. So get on it, folks. Get on it. Rally to our cause. Get out there and look for our Twitter at the DND Podcast. D is in David, N is in Nancy, D is in David Podcast, and help us become the official Duke and Duchess of Bel Air. <laughs> Are we ready to talk about the book now? Yes, let's do this. All right. Chapter 36. We get a glimpse into Dalinar and Evie's happy-ish home. Dalinar is less alive when there isn't anyone to fight, and Evie freaks him out with her hippy-dippy talk of the one and visiting the Night Watcher. Gavilar arrives with the news that the child Dalinar spared in Rathalus has returned to claim Oathbringer. Dalinar is strangely moved by Evie's pride. Her husband isn't a baby killer after all. Is Dalinar starting to change? What is he, some mush-headed reshi? (laughs) Couldn't kill a defenseless child? This is not the black thorn that I know and love. Right? This is like a beige thorn here. I know, yellow perhaps. (laughs) 
So we're watching Dalinar's evolution from a violent, toxic dude bro into, you know, the tortured stick in the mud that we know and love. (laughs) And we're beginning to see that uh, Evie has a big part in that. Absolutely, yeah. Even though she is literally a dishwater person. I mean, if dishwater was a person, it would be this character. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. She's pretty much kind of the blandest, most boring... She's the Oldsmobile of people. She really is. Right. And I don't know if she's written that way to make Navani look more interesting. And she is, in this chapter, directly compared mm-hmm. to Navani. You know, and Dalinar brings up what seems to be sort of an interesting topic of conversation that he first talked about with Navani. Mm-hmm. And Evie is pretty much like, I am against intellectual curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> Why ask questions? You're going to be dead eventually. Exactly. We're all going to die. So why wonder about anything? Why would you ask questions? That seems silly. So what do we think of Evie? I mean, I think you just framed it out there. I mean, I told you what I think. No, there's just really not a lot to it. It, it, It's interesting because this, so far, the relationship with Evie and Dalinar seems to be very much a telling, not showing right. sort of thing, where Brandon Sanderson's like, Dalinar loved Evie very much. Now going on to Gavilar and what he's right. like, there's just, uh, I mean, you can see in this chapter, there's a little bit of a behavior change in his, in ref, you know, him, there's a little bit of a behavior change reflected in Dalinar's behaviors and actions, which is a good thing. But you don't get any inkling as to why. Now, is that because this is just the only real you know time she's been on the page, and will mm-hmm. she be better developed and give us a reason to think she's a worthwhile character? You know, time will tell. But so far, n- nothing. You know, I would disagree with you about the 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 idea that Dalinar is supposed to love Evie. I don't think that we've been shown that at all or told that it's kind of been assumed that he must have loved her very much because he went and got his memories erased of her after she was lost. However, you know, what we're seeing of their actual interactions, his first impressions of her, and now, you know, she's there carrying his first child. He's pretty meh towards her and is still obviously super into Navani. Well, the one thing I would say, and the reason why I made that statement is he makes the comment that he didn't care what the people thought. He only cared what this woman thought of his decision to spare the child. Well, that is true. And it's certainly, whether or not he's in love with her, her opinion, surprisingly to him, seems to matter. Yeah, that. so, yeah, perhaps it was rash of me to assume that his caring about her opinion indicated some you know, degree of love there. I don't know. Um but that was what I was basing it off of. And I'm not trying to nitpick your words. It's just what's an interesting point for me is the question, does Dalinar love Evie? Is he in love with her? You know, what is the context of their relationship that then led to him making this decision to, you know, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind himself? Do you want to fight? I mean, I kind of want to fight. We'll do it after the podcast. Okay. My question in this chapter is, I feel like I've missed something with this child. So fill fill in the gaps for me here if I've missed something. Because it seems to me that they're laying the groundwork to say, you know, soft-headed Dalinar, you know, left this child and didn't kill this heir to this kingdom that they uh, that they crushed. 
and he's going to become a problem down the road. But I don't ever remember them saying who this kid is or what his name was or is he a player currently? Like, you know, did he become, did they end up making him, is he a high prince somewhere that we, like, I don't know any of the sort of historical connection at all. I don't know if I missed it or if it's just not there. Do you remember the flashback where he spared the child? I do. That's pretty much what we know about him so far. Okay, yeah. I also, I think I kind of tuned that flashback out because it was like, it was the, um, it was the Knight Rider episode of flashbacks. It's just like a lot of like shots of cars, yes. you know, and Michael, you should take the shard blade. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it was just, you know, look at how cool Dalinar is. He's killing all these people. You know, and then I'm like, oh, you know, does he spare this kid? Does he kill this kid? But other than being the son of these people and claiming that the shard plate uh, or shard blade, I forget, or I guess shard blade doesn't belong to him, you know, and I'm sure it's somehow tied into, I think that's Oathbringer, the, yes. the shard blade. So, yes. so, like, what I'm afraid of, and I hope I'm wrong, but what I'm afraid of is that the sword, Oathbringer, title of the book, is going to matter more than the child and the family it was taken from, and that's just going to get brushed under the rug. Now, we're still kind of in the beginning of Dalinar's flashback sequence, so I hope I'm wrong, but I'm really, I'm rooting for Brandon Sanderson to not make the sword more important than the child. So the only thing that we have only other possible thing to mention is that the place where the child was from, where Dalinar went and, and one oath bringer uh, was a place called Rathalas. And that I believe it's been discussed uh, between Dalinar and one of the men who was back with him in those days, that something really terrible happened there. So we've kind of had that hint. And then, then we had the, the, seen with him getting his shard blade there and now apparently there's some other kind of trouble in that area well and i think the sword has some history later in the section that goes even before rathalos as well so another thing that i noted is dalinar is talking about the the flame spren with evie mm, mm -hmm. and he says to her they're watching them and he says to her, do you think that a man can change like those spren change? And I just thought it was interesting because there was an interlude sometime back where there were two ardents who were measuring flame spren. Mm -hmm. And they found that when they wrote down the measurements of the flame spren, they stopped changing. Yeah, that's right. I don't mm -hmm. know exactly what I want to say that about that, but I think it that something might be significant. Something to keep our eye on. Hmm. Or that's kind of interesting. I had a note there that during that conversation that Evie refers to the one again. Well, why right. why ask questions? You're going to die and you'll get to see the one eventually. Uh, and Dalinar equates the one to the Night Watcher. So are they the same thing? So Evie talks about the one. I don't think that Dalinar knows a whole lot about her religion. But, no, clearly. Um, she tells him he should talk to the one. And he's like what, just call him up on the phone? Like what, you know? And she says, no, you need to go to the valley and you can see the one's avatar there and you can ask a boon. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you're talking about the Night Watcher. That's some hippy dippy shit. Like, mm -hmm. like we don't do that here. 
Um, he's like, geez, I forgot how backward she is. So, so the Night Watcher is at least the avatar of the one, according to her. According to her. Okay. But this leads into that discussion where she talks about, you know, your entire religion and the entire Voren faith is about transformation through self-improvement. And I think that's it's, a significant statement as well. So what we're going to find out is that uh, behind honor and cultivation, behind all of that, when we get to the real true Voren gods, it's going to be Tony Robbins. <laughs> I, I hope not. Chapter 37 is called The Last Time We March. We have a rock point of view chapter. He's making stew, Natch, and watching Kaladin train the apprentice Windrunners. The squires are taking off, but Kaladin isn't sure whether they will be ready in time for the expedition to Kolinar that Elikar is planning. Rock has a heart-to-heart with Renarin, who is struggling with his identity since coming out as a truth watcher. Haber learns to draw stormlight, and his legs are healed. Rock's family also arrives at the Shattered Plains. So this was a long one. It was a long chapter. Almost George R. R. Martin-like. How so? Well, it was like half as many food descriptions as a right. typical George R. R. Martin chapter. Right, that's true. So It made me hungry, though. I think yeah. on the Facebook page we were talking about how I wanted crab soup after this. I had to go get some. Yeah. <laughs> there weren't nearly as many raisin and onion stuffed capons as a true. George R. R. Martin chapter. But true. Sweet I've never breads. made more roast chicken than when <laughs> I was going through. A storm of swords. Yeah, but it almost gets there. It almost gets there. <laughs> so one thing that I noticed this time because of something I read, and I can't remember which, there are so many fantasy literature Facebook groups that I'm a part of, but on one of those, someone was talking about, it might have been even our page, the fact that it bothered them that Rock's speech is this broken English, but then in his internal speech, it was different. Um, and that even when he spoke a little bit out loud in this chapter, it was less broken. Did you notice or did that bother you at all? No, actually, I didn't. I didn't put any of it together. My first note, however, is uh, the quote. They called rock. They called him rock on account of their thick lowlander tongues instead of calling him Lunamore, his name. I'm like, wait a minute. They can say Renarin, but they can't say Lunamore like it just seems silly. Like, we had to call him Rock because Lunamore was just impossible to say. Like, that just doesn't hold up logically. It just doesn't make any sense. His full name is much longer than just Lunamore, though. Yeah, absolutely. But but the point being that that was his full name, but people in... Uh, what's the name of the mountains? I can't remember. Um, the Peaks. The Peaks. The people in the Peaks uh, call him Lunamore, but... These Ersic Lowlanders couldn't handle a name like Lunamore. But there's so many weird names. I mean, it's basically the same as Renarin, mm-hmm. like on like a difficulty level. That that just doesn't hold up. Or Yali. Or- I, I agree. However, I would say when he introduces himself to them, it's not he doesn't introduce himself as Lunamore. But that but, is a good point that his yeah. family then calls him that. Yeah, exactly. It's it. it so I don't know if that was just for simplicity's sake. At this point in the in the chapter, he's not Brandon Sanderson's not going to type out this fifteen letter name every time, but that is a good point. Now Lunamore's seven letters. So I did notice that, but I didn't I did not 
take the time to contrast his internal voice with uh, what he speaks when he speaks out loud. The, the reason why I don't put a lot of stock into that is because when you're trying to capture someone's internal voice, even though they might be speaking in a different language, you're not going to phrase it as though it's being translated. It's their internal voice. It's going to be using the language that is the, the easiest for us, the reader, to understand because it wants to put us in, in their head without there being any sort of obstacles. If you were reading a story about somebody who you know, was from a foreign country and they were learning English, the, all the narrative parts that are from their perspective would, in English would be in perfect English, but their, but their dialogue would be broken. That, to me, seems normal. Right. Yeah, and I agree with you there. I was just curious as to what your take on that was. I think we get a lot of information in this chapter about Rock's role in Bridge Four, and we learn a couple of things about him that indicate that he's kind of something special. One thing I noticed was how he's more than just a cook. You know, we watch him through his point of view. We watch him become like a like a counselor, sort of mm-hmm. a, a point of cohesion, really, in this group. Yeah, absolutely. No. I mean, probably more than anybody, uh, perhaps other than Kaladin himself, Rock has had the biggest role in actually bringing the group together. I agree. And I particularly his conversation with Renarin, you really see that come out. We also see how Rock can see Spren that Mm -hmm. other people don't seem to be able to see. So that's definitely a point of interest. Yeah, which we knew. Uh, We knew that already, but we get to, you know, it's it's kind of important in this chapter because we sort of see the process of Kaladin bringing people out here, trying to train them. Apparently, uh, the Spren are hanging out and watching it like it's a high school football game and being like, well, that one looks (laughs) halfway decent. Uh, Maybe maybe we'll send this broke-ass Spren out. Pair up with that one. So we get to sort of see that process. But really what I thought was the most interesting observation from him as it relates to Spren is that Renarin does not seem to have one. Or, or Rock can't see it. Or Rock can't see it. That is definitely a point of interest. Another one that I would point out in conjunction with Rock seeming to have this ability to see all Spren that most humans don't have there's a line where Rock is kneading bread dough. Mm-hmm. And it says that he was humming his mother's song to a beat he could almost barely just faintly hear. Yeah, I, I, I heard that line as well. And I know that there was, a, there was a line in the past where we talked about the Herdazians having fingernails that mm-hmm. were almost sheetness, uh, which fingernails are. But the bears were like carapace. Oh, more like carapace. Is what it said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I caught that line and I, you know, and on one hand, it could mean, it it doesn't have to mean anything. Right. You know, that, I mean, I can hear and feel music in my head all the time as though it's playing, even though it's not. Uh, So I would think that's a fairly normal human thing. Uh, On the other hand, we have the, 
observations of the listeners uh, to sort of juxtapose this against. And, and because I don't think anybody writes throwaway lines, I'm sure that's what they're trying to allude to. Uh, you know, is this another indication that, you know, we also find out in this section that there are humans and parsh uh, parchment fighting alongside each other in the desolations mm -hmm. as allies. Is this another indication that, you know, 4,000 years ago there was some crossbreeding going mm -hmm. on or something like that? I mean, maybe that's the only thing I can think of. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's secretly... Esh no, I. no, I, yeah. I don't think so either. But I, I definitely think there's a possibility that this indicates that there are humans who have a bit of Parshendi abilities or or maybe Parshendi ancestors or mm -hmm. have have something something that's not entirely human about them. I, I mean, given the fact that we have like people with blue skin and people who can shape shift and all these other weird, you know, things going on, I don't. Um, I think it's important to note, but I, but it's not. I don't find that surprising. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. The um, the other thing I, I took a few notes about Renarin, other than his whole spren thing. The other thing I noted is he gets into a conversation with Rock about sort of his motivation. Rock questions his motivations, mm -hmm. and it seems entirely. To simply do, on one hand, what his father expects him to do, mm -hmm. or be, and on the other hand, to defy everyone else's expectation. Mm -hmm. You know, he wants to be a warrior because that's what his father wants of him, even though he's not particularly well-suited of it. Mm -hmm. He's particularly well-suited to be an ardent, but he doesn't want to do it because that's what everyone else expects of him. Mm -hmm. So it's just an interesting way to sort of frame your behavior. I agree. And I think there are probably more than a few teenagers who can relate to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that whole identity crisis stage and kind of being afraid to be defined by others' expectations. I think that that's something most of us can relate to. Another thing that I noted down that I thought was important that I don't think I ever picked up on before is how different Rock's reaction to his past trauma is from Kaladin and Moash and a lot of the other characters we've seen. Rock, through his point of view, we find out that he and his brother came down out of the peaks to try and challenge Sadius. And maybe we already knew this. I'm, I'm not sure, but we, we hear did. it. We did. We did. But we hear it kind of in his own head, thinking about this story. He and his brother, they came down from the peaks to challenge Sadius to try and win some shard plate and instead of fairly dueling him Sadius just really in an underhanded way killed him killed a bunch of his family threw mm -hmm. rock in a slavery he, so he he's thinking about this story but there's no bitterness there's no yeah. he's just like he's not happy about it but when you compare it to Moash who used it as an excuse to just go off the rails and try and kill one of his best friends. When you mm -hmm. look at Kaladin, who used it as an excuse to, you know, become this completely miserable, sad sack. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was really worthy of noting. And I think that makes Rock a really important character. I think that's not there uh, by accident. The other part of it is that we see at the end of this chapter that he gets reunited with his family. And he definitely mentions at times that, you know, he misses his family. Mm -hmm. But... He doesn't 
you know, dwell on it or mope about it mm-hmm. um, the way some others have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he doesn't create multiple personalities to deal to, with To deal it. with it, exactly. So we also learn this is very significant in his interactions with his family that Rock is obviously the king of the Horn Eaters of, or some kind of chief. Hmm. Because his wife is saying, so... So this one's died and that one died. And that means that you, and he says, I'm a chef. Ah, okay. And she's like, but no, you're, and he's like, nope, I'm a chef. And she's like, okay. Which is interesting because he was a fourth son and became a chef because the third son died. So it's not as though the concept of moving, you know, stations because Mm -hmm. of someone's death is foreign to him. Right. He's only a chef because of that. Right. However, he is he is obviously not wanting whatever role he is supposed to be. For sure. We also learn from Rock's wife, Song, that something is wrong in the peaks. Something there's, is happening. There's some sort of disturbance, some sort of uncalm. Some bad juju going down. Definitely. They... Um, they're wild, the peaks. They're untrained. They need to be calmed. Okay, I get it. You need to calm your peaks. Calm your peaks. <laughs> calm your peaks, woman. <laughs> so other good stuff that I just liked reading in this chapter. Hobber being healed. That was nice. Lopin sticking himself to the ground. As you do. Quite funny, as you do. Uh, Rock calling someone, uh, telling someone he's going to promote them to airsick lowlander second class. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And Bridge 4's last run with their bridge. So the bridge, the last run with the bridge thing I thought was interesting, just because they sort of treat it with such nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of interesting to me, like where you draw the line between like remembering something that was kind of shitty, but with a certain air of nostalgia mm-hmm. uh, versus what's just traumatic and you don't want to think about. Right. Because it seems to me like everything that bridge four went through should be not something you would view with any degree of nostalgia, but they're like, ah, oh, there she is. The old bridge. Let's give her one last run, you know? And I think it's because they ended up coming out of it the other side somehow whole. Right. But And, and it was a formative part of making them what they are, you know? It's important to remember the other bridge crews didn't really feel part of this new unit until Kaladin took them down into the chasms to train. Yeah, mm-hmm. Like he had done with Bridge Four, so it's it's a part was definitely a part of their identity. I mean, it's in the name and everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I get it. To me, that was kind of a touching moment. I do think it's an interesting exploration of where people sort of draw the line between mm-hmm. uh, recalling something that was troubling or difficult or problematic in a way that's nostalgic, yeah, uh, versus you know, lamenting it as something traumatic, uh, you know, and that you would not recall with any degree of fondness. 
I agree. Chapter 38 is called Broken People. Dalinar brings Navani and Yasna into a vision. He has a heart-to-heart with Yasna, and he and Navani learn more about the fused, and they realize that the madman they once held in custody really was Telenalot. Damn. Damn. Which is sort of what we expected. I think I thought we had guessed that that's who that was. I can't remember what you guessed. Hmm, okay. I think maybe it is. I think so, yeah. That's definitely what I had in my head. Yes. So my my first note here is five female heralds? Where them bitches at? <laughs> we haven't seen any female heralds. Or have we? Well, we haven't, none that we have noted. Oh, wait a minute. The one who was destroying all the artwork, maybe? Oh, maybe. The mistress? The mistress. Mm, okay. All right. Remember how she was like, I should get myself a shard blade. You know, I do, just like, yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right. So we've seen one of them. Maybe. Now you're being coy just to do I it. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> you want to fight? I, I thought we already covered that. <laughs> So I have here a uh, quote where the rock rippled in a strange little symmetrical pattern. It looked like liquid frozen mid flow. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of the description of Capsule's sand dancer thing that he mm-hmm. had, whatever that thing is called, uh, where it shakes everything out into yeah. you know, specific patterns. But also some of the different cities in Roshar where when you're looking at them from overhead, you can sort of see it looks like the stone has rippled in all these weird patterns. And we... Mm-hmm. We see all these cities built around these really, really strange, you know, uh, geological shapes, things that they that it doesn't seem like would occur naturally under most circumstances. Mm-hmm. So does the fact that these cities, like the city that Lyft was in and Edge Dancer, that it revolves around this like giant hole in the ground and mm-hmm. uh, the one city that's built on like a weird star-shaped pattern, does the fact that a number of these cities have become major cities is that somehow significant, like these geological shapes? I don't know if that's answered for us. I do know that the the cymatics lesson that Capsule ah, gave to Shalon... I called it sand dancing. You know what? I like yours better. The sand dancing lesson <laughs> that Capsule gave to Shalon, way back in the beginning of the series, he pointed out that the different patterns that the sand made looked just like the layouts of the different cities oh, okay. mm-hmm. on Roshar. So I would say, yeah, that's probably significant. In this case, during this battle, we see another order of the radiance that we haven't seen yet, a stone ward who seems to be able to melt and reshape stone, hmm. which is handy. That would be, that would be handy. Be. Yeah, yeah. We see him melt a stone cliff to make handholds so that he can climb up and others can mm-hmm. climb down, stuff like that. We so- also find out that there were this is the, the chapter where we find out that there were humans who fought alongside the Voidbringers. Correct, yeah. I mean, listen, we all saw Lord of the Rings when, you know, the weird men from the country fought alongside the orcs. Right. It's nothing unusual. No, I mean, it happens. It happens. I found it fascinating. Did you? Intriguing? I found it intriguing. Enlightening? A little. <laughs> there was another comment that said... Um, Talking about the souls of the dead Parshman going to damnation where they tortured the heralds. Right. So we got a big reveal at the end of this. I mean, this chapter is half kind of pointless battle scene, 
and then half like big huge revelations. Yeah, if I had any criticisms of of Brandon Sanderson's book so far, and clearly I haven't, it would be there's a lot of useless battle scenes. You know, one of the first things that I noticed about little bit of a sidebar here, but one of the first things I noticed about Brandon Sanderson's writing is how much I enjoyed his fight scenes. And from the first time I picked up Mistborn, I was like, I, I got through it and I and I was like, I read every fight scene in that book. I never read the fight scenes. Mm-hmm. I skip to the end to see who wins. And then I go back and I'm kind of like, blah, blah, kick, punch, whatever. Okay, did I miss anything important? Yeah. No. And that's probably why I read as fast as I do because I just, I, I have a really hard time, but I love the way that he writes action scenes. In this chapter, I was like, uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, it's a vision he's already been, like, yeah. there were literally <laughs> no stakes. So every what? blow by blow was like, was kind of like uh, well, okay. partic- exactly particularly in this book because so far all the fights that we've seen have all been replays of these battles that we know aren't real it's like right. you know it's like yeah, there, there's zero stakes exactly here, you know so, so like we could you know this book could only be 700 pages if we <laughs> if we took all that crap out of there <laughs> It was not intriguing. Yes. I mean, so for me, that is definitely, I, I would I would call it a quibble at, at this uh, agreed, point. Agreed. With this book, but the, the battle scenes and the visions, I'm like, I didn't need that. I, I Less battle scenes, more sand dancing. There you go. But then we get some truth bombs dropped on us about the heralds, and we finally get the Stormfather to just kind of lay some things out there which is refreshing. It's about damn time. A lot of teasing going on, finally getting a little action. I'd say we're almost at like third base with the Stormfather here at this point. I've known this truth for 4,000 years. I didn't tell it to you because it wasn't plot relevant. (laughs) Because the editor said it was better to wait. You You know what? I I think it's intriguing that the Stormfather... That that's actually addressed. Uh, it is, yeah. The Stormfather reveals this stuff to Dalinar, and but then explains to us that that number one, he wasn't always the way he is. Before Honor died, he didn't quite have. He was self aware, but he wasn't interested really in what was going on with humans. So he didn't pay that much attention, and he also didn't have the level of sentience that he does now True. He became something more so he doesn't have all the information he also has changed in in and through his bond with dalinar it is he talks about the heralds in particular and how he hated them for so long he couldn't understand them they broke their oaths they you know destroyed all of this stuff now he's learning to have empathy for them and he's like that's very weird and interesting to me because I that's not anything I've experienced before. So it kind of explains a little bit why he has never just explained all of this to him, to them. It's also consistent with other things we've seen from Spren in that they... Right. You know, they come sort of out of the world in the bond and they're, you know, like little babies bumping into table legs until right. they eventually learn to walk. And so we find out that the 
the fused are souls of Parshendi that refuse to pass on. They also crazy. Yeah. 4,000 years of hatred. Not in a cute way. No. It's not like Winona Ryder crazy. Okay? No. No. You didn't put some Christmas lights on your wall and right. talk to your dead son. Exactly. It's, you know. It's not, it's not endearing, sort of. They're not kooky. No. There's nothing okay? kooky. Yeah. Nothing kooky. Just full on cray. The fuse, though, not cute crazy. They crazy. No, no. Yeah. They, they, there's something not right there. Uh, they're, they're, they've had too much time spent with Odium. They said that they are, you know, they're kind of tainted by him. They're just infused with his hatred. We also find out that Odium is sealed by the powers of cultivation and honor. That seems important. And we also find out why there was such a long break between um, what they thought was the last desolation and the current time. And that is because Telenolot was the only one that was there holding back the the fused. And this is a situation where with the heralds, it was, you know, a chain of the weakest link. And prior to whatever it was that caused the heralds to break uh, and and abandon uh, Talenalot Mm -hmm. to his uh, his fate there, they were, you know, they were having desolations every couple of years. Right. Because one of them would always cave. Because you would. Because you would. So it's it's significant too that they they mention that uh, Talenalot was the only one who had never broken, even though he was the one that wasn't meant to have joined them in the first place. He was the only one who was not a king, a scholar, or a general, and he managed to last forty five hundred years of torment with no one to share any of that with him. So I now know, we kind of understand why he's the way he is. I mean, forty five hundred years of being tortured—that's like. Whew. That's like almost half as long as Fiona Apple. I don't understand that joke at all. <laughs> because Fiona Apple has been tortured for her entire life. Gotcha. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just not that good. Let's try it again. Okay. 4,500 years he's been tortured. Damn, that's like... It's like half as long as Gary Busey. Half as long as Gary Busey was tortured. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Poor Gary Busey. Talenalot, Gary Busey is my new head cannon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talenalot, Gary Busey, and Fiona Apple walk into a bar. <laughs> they all say, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> they all said, Figures. <laughs> so we also learn that Talenalot has, and I really hope I'm saying Talenalot correctly, because if I'm not, there are some listeners out there who are ready to claw their ears off of their heads. If so, I apologize. But we find out that he's joined the nine who are all still alive and walking around. They got a flat somewhere in the, the Lower East Side. Just bumming. <laughs> We find out that the honor blades were discovered by one of the Shin, so that's significant. Which makes sense, given that most of them reside there. Also, the home of cultiva- home of cultivation. So, I'm I'm for keeping them there. But we're left with a couple of questions that even the Stormfather can't answer. One: What happened to Talon's shard blade? Because the one that he or his honor blade, his, his real honor blade, his real honor his blade. Real honor blade. 
was not with him when he got to the Shattered Plains. And what is the secret that caused the recreants? Still won't say. He will not say. Because he's like, look, I know you bitches. Bitches love <laughs> betraying oaths. And if I tell you, you're going to betray it. It's ridiculous. Like, Dalinar's like, I, but I won't. I promise. I won't. <laughs> Once again, Dalinar is not like the other guys. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm ride or die, Stormfather. <laughs> Oath packed above everything. Vows before cows. Don't look at me like that. Testaments before sluts. <laughs> I'm not sure what you were trying to go for. <laughs> that was what I was trying to go for. <laughs> oh, mine was better. <laughs> Chapter 39 is called Notes. The Radiant Squad has a club meeting, but Shalana's is bummed because Yasna makes her take notes. Yasna wants to wipe out the Heralds or possibly the Parshman. Maybe both. Kaladin just wants to oppose Yasna. Yasna asks Shalan to open up to her. When Shalan returns to her rooms, she finds a letter from the Ghostbloods promising the truth about her brother Hilarin. So Yasna's nature hasn't changed much. This is definitely still the same character who baited a couple of thieves to attack her in an alley so that she could, you know, literally disintegrate them. Yeah. And she's now a, she's like, let's just kill everyone who might be a problem just she, to be safe. She's somewhat hawkish. I mean, she, yeah, you see Gavilar, you know, you can believe that Gavilar was her father. Gavilar was yeah. the man who, you know, was like, you didn't kill that one kid. Yeah. Right. He was one kid. How it's hard a, is it? It's just a kid, man. She's like, you know, we should just kill all the Parshmen. Uh, and to be safe, let's just kill the Heralds, too. I just can't be too careful. You know, um, I was going to have somebody come here and take notes, but I thought it would be safer to just kill them. Right. <laughs> just to be safe, murder. Yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> just stabbing people in the liver. Like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> I felt threatened. <laughs> Yasna just kills everybody just just to be safe, you know. Parshman, heralds, chickens. Fucking hate chickens. She said, strangling an axe hound. <laughs> we also find out that Shalon is stuffing her feelings about Kaladin being the one who killed her brother. So we know that'll end well. I'm sure. Yeah. And Kaladin Yasna, some steamy, steamy tension going on. Or possibly hatred. Hard to tell at this point. Kaladin reminds me so much of one of my best friends growing up. Really? Particularly when he's being sort of like petulant and being like, you know, and arguing with people. Because he gets into arguments with people. It's not that he doesn't have valid points. I think he has mm -hmm. some great points. Mm-hmm. In this, but he'll also get in arguments and just just to argue, right? You know, and uh, and I just I can't see him, I can't see him coming around to Yasna, right? Maybe it's because I've envisioned him 
as somebody I grew up with, you know. No, Kaladin's points are valid, and I, I think it's a major theme in this book that we've talked about many times. Is there a right side to any conflict? Kaladin has now traveled with some Parshmen. He has seen what the, not the fused, but the the difference between the fused and kind of everyday Parshman. And he he's really torn about what is the right thing to do. So he's going to speak up for them. Dalinar's point is that, you know what, there are always people in every conflict that maybe don't deserve to be there, maybe don't have a choice but to be there. But unfortunately, that's just the way it is. And Kaladin says to him, well, maybe that should make you reconsider those other wars rather than using that to justify this one. Absolutely, yeah. Which is like, snap. It's pretty strong. Damn. That's a good point. I think it's one of the most important ones in this book. So I I like from the beginning, the very first sentence is, Shalon can take notes for us. And I'm like, how fucking petty. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I read through the chapter twice. I heard her sort of explaining to Shalon, hey, you know, you're not quite sure where you are. There's some stuff going on with you. I figured I was just going to demean you in front of my entire family to make up. Like, like this, it's hard for me to see it as anything other than petty. I get that she's not paying attention a lot, and I can see doing this as a way of trying to force her to pay attention. So I can understand it from that perspective. But when giving the opportunity to explain that, that's not what Yasna says. So it makes it hard for me to see this as anything other than petty. I'm very, very impressed with what you've done, but take these fucking notes. It's the equivalent of saying to Buzz Aldrin, Hey, Buzz, would you take our bags to our room? Hey, Winston Churchill, I know you saved the world from Nazis. Make me a fucking sandwich. That's a really good point. And I would say that was my first reaction as well. You know, at the same time, I have less sympathy for Shalon when I read it through. And and she says, well, you know, she had gone into this meeting planning to sit in the corner and draw and not contribute anything. Mm -hmm. Basically, she's she's completely checked out of her responsibilities as a radiant. And maybe that's because she's now she's created this other personality, this brightness radiant who can do all that stuff. So when she is Shalon, which is most of the time, it, she just is in flighty schoolgirl mode, which is not what she needs to be doing. So I, I have less sympathy when for her when she's she's obviously completely checked out. She wasn't even going to listen or pay attention or contribute anything. But there are other ways to draw her out and bring her into the conversation. And I don't think that Yasna's intention was to was completely altruistic. I think definitely there was part of her who was used to seeing Shalon as her ward. Yeah, and absolutely. She's come into this situation and she feels out of her element and Shalon has kind of risen to a place of authority. And she I definitely think there was some pettiness there. At the same time, I feel like Shalon is also being petty. Oh, agreed. And you know, there are comments at the end, you know, where Pattern says Hmm, if only we could solve this problem, perhaps by acting like adults. Right. You know? You know yeah. I, I mean, I think you can see for sure that Shalon is getting kind of put into her place, and it's not entirely a negative thing. But I have a hard time seeing Yasna as a person who has motivations other than, 
it's not that her motivations aren't altruistic. I mean, you know, for a long time, she carried this secret about what might be happening to the entire world as, you know, the only person out there trying to figure it out. But also what I've seen from her is warmongering, Mm -hmm. you know, luring people into traps just to kill them, Mm -hmm. you know, and treating people as though she's the queen ass bitch and what other people feel or doesn't matter. Like, Mm -hmm. so it's hard for me to, I can understand everything you say about Shalon is accurate, but I still feel like Yasna's being a bitch. I think we're both right. I think these are actually just (laughs) complex characters. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. I don't think we're supposed to like everything about them. No, agreed. Agreed. So Kaladin says, the parchment on our enemies. Shalon glanced at him. There was something about that wavy dark hair, that grim expression, always serious, always solemn, and so tense. Like he had to be strict with himself to contain his passions. Like he was a little backed up. (laughs) I think it's a good thing that Kaladin's not getting any, because otherwise this whole series would have ended back on page 200 of The Way of Kings. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen a narrative more obviously derived from an excess of life's brand. (laughs) And then when Kaladin's arguing with Yasna, you know, uh, Yasna says... Perhaps you should visit my uncle's vision and see for yourself the consequences of a soft heart. And he's like, um, excuse me, my father was a doctor. I've seen several examples of a soft heart, usually leading to soft penis right before death. (laughs) Dalinar says, I can't afford to stay my hand from war. Everything you say is right, but it is also nothing new. I've never gone into battle where some poor fool on either side, men who didn't want to be there in the first place, weren't going to bear the brunt of the pain. Maybe, Kaladin said, you should. that should make you reconsider the other words. I'm just going to scrap that whole section because we already covered it. Um, so when Yasna and Shalon are sort of arguing there at the end, Shalon says to Yasna, you know, maybe we should just consider my wordship done, considering as how I'm a full radiant now. And Yasna says, radiant, yes. Full? Mm. Where is your armor? Mm. Which is what she says to Shalon after she was just in a vision in the last chapter where she saw a full radiant mm-hmm. who was not wearing armor on mm-hmm. the battlefield, healing people. Does that mean anything? I don't know, but she was just there and saw Radiance running around, some of whom were not wearing shard plates. So mm-hmm. is this some u- universal truth that all 12 orders or all 10 orders of the Radiance all have shard plate? I don't think that that's been told to us before. So is this evidence that uh, there's just a piece of information we've missed? Mm-hmm. Is this evidence that Yasna's deliberately telling her something that's not true? I don't know. I feel like all of the... I wouldn't say... That didn't strike me as untrue. At least my first time through, especially. That the idea that they all have shard blades. So it seems to me like they probably all have shard blade too. Just nobody knows how to get that yet. It has something to do with finding the next ideals. 
But also, Yasna doesn't have sharp blade either. That we know of. True. And that wasn't a hint. That was just, you know. I agree. Yasna's being petty as hell. And and Shallan's being childish. Yeah. And it doesn't, I don't think the, the right thing for Shallan at this point is to go off and try and be an adult either. Did you know that the human brain does not become fully mature until your mid-20s? I've heard that. Oh, you have heard that. Yeah, it's yeah. It's true. I've heard so that. So Shallan's prefrontal cortex is not fully connected to the rest of her brain yet. Yeah, I think we shouldn't let people vote. Until <laughs> we should just lock everyone down until they're 25. Or drive or anything. I'm just saying. It just explains so many things about our teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that by the way about voting. Just, just so, oh yeah. <laughs> just before anybody reaches out and says that we've made a political statement, we, it's we, not. It's we need not. a full disclaimer at the beginning of every podcast. The opinions expressed on this podcast are not real. Are bullshit. We mostly are joking. Yeah. Chapter 40 is called Questions, Peaks, and Inferences. Shallan's letter from the Ghostbloods raises as many questions as it answers. This is very frustrating for her, so she puts on one of her alternate personalities and goes drinking with Vatha and the boys. Vale tries to get the gang to bitch about Shallan, but they won't bite. Things take an interesting turn when Vale catches former spy-slash-groupie Ishna trying to spy on her. She recruits Ishna as an ally in hopes that she will be able to find out what the Ghostbloods are up to. So, holy information dump, Batman. Yeah, the last two chapters have been more information dumps than I think we've ever gotten in this, in this series. So, how did that feel for you? Is that refreshing? Uh, was it just kind of a lot to take at once? It was a lot to take at once, that's for sure. Uh, I think I think it was kind of both. Mm-hmm. It was refreshing and a lot to take at once. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I sort of like when you aren't being, like information's not being withheld from you, but it's coming to you from the perspective of one person. So it's, it's, it could be flawed. Right. Or other, uh, other perspectives could inform more on it. You know, whereas what we tend to get in Brandon Sanderson's novels is sort of drip, 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 mm-hmm. drip fed things. Um, so I would say that this is more refreshing than frustrating, but it was a lot to take in. Mm-hmm. And I do think the information we dump we got from Stormfather mm-hmm. and the information dump we get from the Ghostbloods here are things that, particularly the letter from the Ghostbloods, that we can't take fully at face value and accept that it's true. Absolutely, because the Stormfather let us know that his memories are unreliable mm-hmm. of certain things. And obviously, the Ghostbloods have a whole agenda that we don't really know about. Exactly. And we know that they are trying to manipulate Vale. So I thought it was interesting that Shallan's this letter, this whole information dump is her reward. Mm-hmm for finding out about the, or dismissing, dispatching the Midnight Mother. Mm-hmm. And it's a story about her brother, her dead brother. Mm-hmm. But I kind of thought what they were supposed to do was help secure her living brothers. So they've already done that. That was... Well, that, so they, so so they, they told her. They told, what they've told her is that 
her living brothers are on their way to the tower. That's their gift to her. No strings attached. Mm -hmm. And then this is supposed to be payment for finding out what was wrong in the tower and getting Mm. rid of it, which she would have done anyway. So at this point, you know, she's, she's wading in these waters and really hasn't committed herself to anything Mm -hmm. that she doesn't want to. That's true. So we do find out that there are, uh, a couple of groups out there who knew about all of this that was going on. And one of them, as we suspected, was headed up by Gavilar. Mm-hmm. And they called themselves the Sons of Honor. And Amaran was part of that too. And then there's, you know, the Ghostbloods as well. And that there's another group that is led by one of the Heralds, uh, Old Scarface, mm-hmm. who we have seen. Yeah. Uh, that we've we've experienced, he's got a a group of squires that he is training to use Stormlight as well, and their mission seems to be to uh, kill everyone who doesn't want to also be a Skybreaker. Yeah, it's interesting. They're the uh, the only order of the Knights of Radiance not to abandon their spren and not to fall victim during the Recreants. They have remained over thousands of years with a force of couple of dudes. I don't know that that's true. I think that these are new skybreakers. I'm sure they are, but but it's just interesting that for the thousands of years that they have supposedly existed and being the only ones to not sort of break from their bond, that's not publicly known and there's not a shit ton of them running around, at least not that we know of. I just I don't know it's true that the skybreakers didn't break their oaths. I think Nin. Oh, that's what they said. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Then I, I was thinking about something else. Though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then I agree with you there. You would just think like a group of radiants who didn't break their bond were the only ones to sort of exist during this period of time. Mm-hmm. Would have would be powerful as shit. Right. It seems like Nail and a couple of, like, acolytes. Now, whether that means my impression is accurate or whether they're just really good at remaining underground, I don't know. Well, they also say in this letter that you should know that the Heralds are no longer to be seen as allies to man. Those that are not completely insane have been broken. And Nail is uh, no exception. Oh, of course. So... You know, this this group, this clandestine group that's been existing for thousands of years is also headed up by a someone who's not all there. Absolutely. His motives yeah. are, you know, well, unclear probably even to himself. They're pretty batshit. Mm-hmm. Well, and we find out in Edge Dancer that he's being kind of guided along by, um, by Ishii, yeah, one of yeah. the other heralds who has been kind of feeding him wrong information. Mm-hmm. So there's a, that's definitely a factor, I'm sure. Yeah. So we find out about Hilaire, and he was a skybreaker, somebody working for Nail, mm-hmm. sent to assassinate somebody who had bonded a spren, somebody in mm-hmm. Amaram's camp mm-hmm. uh, when he was killed, somebody other than Kaladin. Mm-hmm. Or he could have just been sent to assassinate Amaram. Mm-hmm. Hard to say. But either way, the letter seems to indicate that there have been many, many, many others who have been bonding Spren for long before anybody in our Scooby gang, 
the inns, Aladdin or Adolin, Renarin, Galadin, mm-hmm. Shalon, you know, before any of those people had bonded a spren and sort of claimed the return of the radiance. Uh, so who are they? Where are they? Is it possible that they were all killed by nail? I mean, seems unlikely. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of them were. Well, in the case of the the potential Radiant and Amaram's army, they said that from their spying on the Skybreakers, they have records showing that the only member of Amaram's army to have bonded a Spren was long since eliminated before the attack on Amaram. Yeah, exactly. So someone, not Kaladin, in the army mm-hmm. bonded a Spren but had long since been killed. True, yeah. So the other question is, why are the Ghostbloods telling all this? I understand on the face of it, this is a reward for for Vale. Okay, fine, great. Also, I would say that for the most part, even though this is a lot of information, a lot of it, a lot of the actual reveals, like they, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were sent um, to try to assassinate Amaran. There was somebody who had already bonded a Spren. The fact that Nail, you know, had never, like they're the only ones to never break their bond. Those are sort of, those are sort of the things that are new. The the major rocks, the big the big items, I don't think were really all that dramatic you mm-hmm. know, to us or things we didn't already know. Um, whether or not they're things that Vale knew, I think is a, a whole other question. But but it's sort of interesting, like why are they telling us? But the more interesting question to me is what are they not telling us? Mm-hmm. They're not telling us anything about them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they're making it, sound like you know other than the ghost bloods there's only two other groups out there can we trust that that's true well i certainly think the ghost bloods are motivated in part at least by a desire to draw veil into their organization and to kind of show her that like we're not necessarily the bad guys we you know there are these that here's what all these other groups are trying to do versus what we're trying to do and here's why you might have a place with us yeah and i don't know that they are the bad guys you know her whole evidence for saying they're the bad guys is that they tried to knife yasna and that is pretty bad i mean it's pretty bad but to their credit they're like yasna has been trying to kill us for a long time right and we know she will kill a motherfucker in a heartbeat that's absolutely true so you know I mean, I'd say that the ghost bloods are chaotic neutral-ish. Seems fair. Uh, seems fair. Yasna's sort of lawful neutral. Yeah, also seems fair. So yeah, a lot of a lot of shades of gray going on. But I do I do like that Shalon at least seems to understand that she's being played. Right. Like she seems to get that, you know, the same questions we're asking, like, well, what are they not telling us? What you know. This is only from their perspective. Like, she seems to get that, which is interesting. Or a positive sign, I would say. Because she has not always been so worldly. Well, and what's extremely significant to me is that immediately upon reading this, she transitions to Vale. Mm-hmm. And Vale goes off, and, and the first thing she wants to do is to complain about Shalon. This is the first time we've seen any of the personalities complaining about each other or talking about each other like this. But we know that Shalon developed Vale as a coping mechanism for situations where she feels powerless. 
So this letter obviously made her feel that way. Mm-hmm. And she she copes with it, like you said, not in a way that she usually does, but she does it as Vale. True. I think that's pretty significant. Um, and that's that's where she goes off. And I thought it was significant that Vatha and the gang would did not engage in wanting to complain about Shalon. No. You know? I mean, she try Vale tries to catfish him real bad. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically Vatha, who in mm-hmm. the past has has been sort of whiny and complainy about mm-hmm. Shalon. Mm-hmm. I did think it was clever how Shalon um found a way to get spy lessons from Ishna without actually asking her for advice or help or admitting that she doesn't know as much as she seems to know. Well, I was very concerned because we have all, one of the things I've noted with Shalon's character is that she tends to exhibit growth in one area, make one Mm -hmm. wise decision Mm -hmm. while also simultaneously, you know, making a bad decision at the same time. Mm -hmm. She says, I shouldn't trust this person but all the while she's trusting somebody else, you mm-hmm. know? So, so after coming off the heels of reading this letter from the ghost bloods and saying, uh, you know, I have to be aware that they're only telling me what I want to hear. Mm-hmm. She meets this character Ishna and I was like, Oh my God, she's just going to be like, come to my place. I'll tell you all my secrets, you know, mm-hmm. like, because that is her pattern in the past and here she doesn't do it. She finds a way to be able to use her and and make use of her without really revealing anything about herself, making any sort of real commitment to anything. Mm -hmm. It does sort of pose an interesting question, though, of with the conversation of, hey, they're not willing to say anything negative about Shalon, but they are sitting around not really doing anything of note. Mm-hmm. Are are they willing to like go listen to Vale and like take a mission from her and begin spying without any direction from Shalon? I mean, I think they've kind of done that in the past. True. I think Vale has taken them out on missions. So it's it's just very interesting how Shalon is using Vale to deal with the the loose ends that she herself has left dangling. Yeah. And doesn't want to cope with. And she tends to attract random women who have heretofore not really been involved in the story, but who pop up with all kinds of like cool skill sets. Like the woman with the mask who was like, I am the master manipulator. I have trained Marais, but I don't know shit. I can't do anything. You know, she tends to attract these sort of random women with these skill sets. The one lady she killed with the shard blade. Tin, yeah. Tin, yeah. So so this so here we have another one popping up. What is what does this mean? You don't see the same sort of characters popping up like that around Kaladin or around anybody else. I'm not saying there's been a real opportunity for that to happen either. It's just peculiar. Well, I think in part this is maybe addressing the idea that, oh, is Shalon is now going to be a master infiltrator after what, five or six days spent with Tin learning how to do accents, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, she does have supernatural powers as well, but there needs to be some way for her to kind of level up in that if she's going to to progress. Yeah. And actually infiltrate this 
this big, bad, nasty organization, you know? I, for me, that would not have been believable if this teenager had been able to do that. No, that makes sense, yeah. Chapter 41 is called On the Ground Looking Up. Teft wakes up in an alley with a wicked fire moss hangover. The problems that led to his demotion to the bridge crews are still there. Despite his promotion, even despite speaking vows and bound bonding a spren. Addiction, self-loathing, and painful memories of his past are keeping Teft in a dark, painful spiral. Kaladin and Rock find him in a fire moss den and drag him back to the barracks. He promises them that he will accept help, but he knows that it's just a matter of time before the moss gets him again. This, this is just what happens to you when you got a white bitch following you around everywhere. Teft has a white bitch following him around everywhere. Everywhere he goes. Pale oh, he white does. skin, glowing faintly, hovering, hair hovering around her head <laughs> like a cloud. That's right, you're right. Just, just every, can't leave him alone. Just pick, 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 pick. So. You've spoken bonds. <laughs> You've said oaths. I want what's mine. <laughs> when you gonna put a baby in me? <laughs> she seemed to say. Something like that. I don't know. I might be. You might be relating a little too much. I might be going. A little far afield. <laughs> so what did you think of Brandon Sanderson's description of an addict's experience? I mean, for, for a guy who doesn't drink caffeine, it's not too shabby. Yeah, I mean, it, it works for me. And I was a little surprised because a, a lot of times, you know, I can really tell when an author doesn't have personal experience in that area and is trying to describe it. But this really works for me. You know, the way that Teft has his attempts to fix himself through external like situational changes, like, oh, if I just get, you know, I'm going to get this job. Oh, I'm going to bond this spread, you know, thinking that that is going to, to fix his addiction when actually it just, he ends up back in the same place. You know, the way that it's rooted in the trauma of his childhood mm -hmm. and, his betrayal of his family, that's that's very realistic. His ability to function for short periods. Um, but the line that got me the most is when he talks about how he first tried Fire Moss because uh, he was encouraged by other people in Sadius's army mm -hmm. to use it as a way to relax. And yeah, how he yeah. talks about like other people seem to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Use a little Seem bit to be normal, relax yeah. a little bit, and then they go, you know, back to their lives. But for him, it didn't work. And I think that's just such a, it's such a very real thing um, in any addict's experience that the things that other people can try once and move on for them, it doesn't work that way. Well, I think it's been well sort of laid over time that, you know, there was the one time they all kind of went out drinking and mm -hmm. then he kind of ran off mm -hmm. and then. Now, all of a sudden, he's been missing a lot more, and then it mm -hmm. gets to the point where he's... So, you know, I think that part has been pretty well done. I mm -hmm. think it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. I think especially his thought process when Kaladin and Rock dra drag him back, and he says, you know, that he made all of the noises that they needed to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get help. I'll tell, uh -huh. you know, I'll let yeah. you help me next time. I promise. It's, and and it's going to be a long time until I can get some fire moss yep. again. Not, I'm done. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah. I mean, for me, I thought this was really well done. And I'm going to have to lay low for a while. Yeah. You know, I was I, I was a little su- surprised at how well done it was, but it was. Chapter 42 is called Consequences. Dalinar is in another vision, this time in the company of Gox, the prime Akasix of Azir. He and Gox watch Jezera lie about winning the battle with the Voidbringers. Gox has come a long way from the scrawny thief we met in Words of Radiance. And Dalinar is surprised at the Emperor's grit and even more surprised when Lyft shows up in the vision and talks about his butt. Lyft! Lyft! I was definitely not expecting that. Right? Definitely not expecting to see that. And then it was fun to watch the Stormfather be like, she's not supposed to be here. "Ah, That woman has gone too far. It's not natural. (laughs) Dalinar's like, none of this is natural. (laughs) I don't like her. (laughs) So we have Dalinar bringing in Gox, who all he knows is that he's he's a brand new emperor and he's not, you know, from a noble family. But that's not unheard of in Aesir. And but we know Gox as the the kid from who Lyft saved using the power of regrowth and who was thrown into this emperorship because everyone else was getting murdered who tried mm-hmm. to have the job. And nobody wanted the job. And nobody wanted it. They're like, here's a random kid who broke in and you know managed to get himself stabbed and revived. <laughs> sure, we'll put it on Make him. Make him the emperor. Make him the emperor, you know. But he seems to have, you know, as Dalinar notes, he seems to be rising into the role. Absolutely. You know, and he 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 gives he gives Dalinar some pretty good verbal back and forth and mm-hmm. their sparring is pretty good. Do you remember the last time mm-hmm. we let an Alethi army on Azir soil? Mm-hmm. You, oh, you're so civilized. Your code of law is only 30 years old. That's mm-hmm. not civilized, mm-hmm. you know. So he's he's holding his own against, you know, this far far more experienced statesman. It seems like Dalinar has an opportunity to sort of potentially win him over when out of fucking nowhere Lyft pops into the vision. Now, on one hand, that was really cool. I was like, where the fuck did Lyft come from? And she's talking about his butt. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's sort of also sort of weird because it's like Lyft can do anything. Mm. And like we have no, there's no precedent for this. So this comes out of nowhere. Well, yes, it's sort of is. However, we've also always known that there was this completely other, this this entirely unknown force in cultivation Mm. who's been mentioned here and there but nobody has dealt with cultivation directly no we 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 stay away from that side of the continent entirely exactly except for lift and we know that lift was has been touched in a special way by cultivation Uh, wendell mentions it in the very beginning when we first meet her Mm-hmm. Um, you've been, you know, she's the only person who can touch Spren and it's, it's all has to do with her, whatever bond she made with cultivation when she visited, mm-hmm. um, the night watcher. So it's really kind of introducing this third power on Roshar, this idea that she can, and now she can come into the visions created by the storm father. So how would she even know that that was going on? It's so bizarre. And, and we don't know, but, but. We also we know that it's because of cultivation that the Stormfather says that woman has gone too far. She's she's touched by 
the Night Watcher, mm-hmm. and um, and Dalinar's like, I I've been, I fooled around with the Night Watcher, like you know, he's like, not like this, you haven't, like, <laughs> it, and that's kind of just another. That's how Brandon Sanderson adds those layers on, like, okay, now we're gonna get ready to learn more about this third power. One of the things I do like about the way he does things is he likes to establish an order. Mm-hmm. Here's the way things work. Get it good and cemented in your brain and then throw, uh, but here's a wrinkle. Here's mm-hmm. an exception to the rules. Mm-hmm. And then throw another one. But you he know. remains consistent, though. Yeah, the rules don't really break. He just, here's a thing you haven't thought of or a thing I have yet to tell you about. It, there's almost no retconning. There's almost no, oh, I messed up, so I have to go back and fix Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. something that I shouldn't have said two books ago. Like... You really never see that in the Cosmere. Everything is, it is what it is. It's it's laid out on purpose for, you know. Which is why this, you know, would make a great video game. You know, like his books, like we talk about the Gentleman Bastards, like Mm -hmm. why has nobody made that a television show yet? Right. right? Like it's so well designed Mm -hmm. for for television. Uh, But when I look at, when I look at, um, Stormlight Archive, I'm like, this would be an epic fucking video game. It really would. <laughs> I would play that game. You know, like, because it's got these clear rules and clear powers mm-hmm. and like, it, you know, it seems like it would be a fun game to play. You mm-hmm. know? It's fun to watch Dalinar kind of get, and the Stormfather both kind of get thrown for a loop. You know, Dalinar's gotten very comfortable. It's And it's it's frustrating to watch him be so kind of obtuse about this fact that no one wants an Alethi army. Like, like if you want to un- unite people, you're going to have to say something other than, but come on. You yeah. know, basically it's like <laughs> people lay out these very valid. Do it. And real, that's pretty much his response. Do it. Just do it. Do it. <laughs> like, like you got to come up with something else, man. Yeah, like I, I, that sort of did catch my uh, attention as well. I'm like, like again, again with the I want to bring right. him a let let me bring a battalion to like, right. Like, like we got to find you got to find some other way. Like like that's your only response. Like uh-huh. just let me send like fifteen hundred of my strongest warriors into your capital. I mean, he's almost as persistent as our children asking for a dog. Yeah. <laughs> almost. I mean, maybe that's the problem. He just needs to ask more persistently. Just every couple of days for the last 14 years, I'm not lying. But listen, let me bring 1,500 of my strongest warriors. <laughs> um, I'll clean up their poop. <laughs> we'll walk them every day. You don't have to exercise them. I'll take care of it. <laughs> So it's refreshing to see not only this this kid, Gox, be able to be like, kind of point that out to him, but then also, you know, Lyft shows up and they just dip out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> yeah, sorry, bud. We, yeah, we're not sticking. We're not sticking around for this bullshit. I like, I, one of the things I love about Lyft's character is her way of sort of like piercing through people and their mm-hmm. facades and these like. Just really basic folksy way, mm-hmm. you know, and she's like, you know, when she's talking about his butt and she's like, no man your age and in your position should have a butt like that unless <laughs> he's been spending a lot of time stabbing people. Right. <laughs> like, 
men of your political position and age all have flat asses for a good reason. No, I don't trust him. <laughs> now, we know that Dalinar is trustworthy, right. but we also know that her observations are correct. Exactly. And again, Dalinar, and I think there's a reason why we are being shown his flashbacks in this book while he's going through all of this, because it gives us a greater understanding of why people react to him the way that he does. Mm -hmm. They do. Yeah. You know, and Dalinar doesn't seem to be able to grasp that. No, he still hasn't figured that out about himself yet. Mm -hmm. It is also interesting that, you know, this is sort of the Dalinar book, not that we haven't spent a lot of time in Dalinar's head anyway. Correct. But but to, to sort of get to see this character grow, where in the first book, like, he sort of recognized that, like, politics wasn't his game, this is not his thing. Now he finds himself in the middle of book three in a position where it has to be his game. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, made some strides in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he's made some sort of self-observation, but he hasn't made that level of observation. Like, mm-hmm. he, he's been able to sort of see himself from the pers- from sort of the perspective of what he is and isn't good at. But he hasn't yet been able to see himself from the perspective of what other people who aren't a lethe see. Mm-hmm. You know, that he hasn't figured out yet. Yeah. So there's still still more room to grow. More will be revealed. I hope so. Otherwise, I'm going to be reading a lot of books for no damn reason. <laughs> so before we get into listener interactions, I thought we could talk about the Snapters. Now, Normally, we kind of do the Snapters at the end of a part. Mm-hmm. However, I believe these Snapters have multiple letters. So I thought we'd kind of read each letter at a time and kind of discuss it. Yeah, it seems like clearly there's been, we're at the end of one letter. Yes. So this seems like an appropriate place to, to do this. So I will read the letter and then we can get your impressions. It goes a little something like this. Dearest Sephandrius, I received your communication, of course. I noticed its arrival immediately, just as I noticed your many intrusions into my land. You think yourself so clever, but my eyes are not those of some petty noble to be clouded by a false nose and some dirt on the cheeks. You mustn't worry yourself about race. It is a pity about Aona and Skye, but they were foolish, violating our pact from the very beginning. Your skills are admirable, but you are merely a man." You had your chance to be more and refused it. No good can come of two shards settling in one location. It was agreed that we would not interfere with one another, and it disappoints me that so few of the other shards have kept to this original agreement. As for Uli Da, it was obvious from the outset that she was going to be a problem. Good riddance. Regardless, this is not your concern. You turned your back on divinity. If race becomes an issue, he will be dealt with, and so will you. Dun, dun, dun. So this sounds very similar to a, a similar response mm-hmm. to one of the previous letters that we read. Yeah, and I think I'm starting to get a better sense of sort of what's going on in the greater Cosmere. Mm-hmm. To me, the the revealing thing about that letter is the concept of when two shards settle in one place. Mm-hmm. And so that tells me that race and Iona and all these people are shards, mm-hmm. you know. And they are sort of these, you know, seats of of power. Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing, I don't know if this is accurate, but what I'm sort of seeing now in my head is that there are sort of levels of divinity. Mm-hmm. 
in the Cosmere. And there's sort of, sort of great creator God mm-hmm. who is like so far even above these characters that we haven't really been able to talk about it or, or put anything on it. And then from that power, that power is broken out into shards, into these sort of uh, demigods, these mm-hmm. or lesser gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from them... I'm I'm believing are the gods odium creation and honor, uh, you know, and it's sort of like these different levels of ascended beings mm-hmm. over over time who have attained different sort of levels and hierarchies within mm-hmm. the the cosmos. Uh, that's sort of what I'm getting out of all these different letters and things, mm-hmm. you know. And these are the guys that are like just a level below the the creator god, but a but above odium and honor and cultivation. That's my take. All right. We'll keep refining that take, but you got a lot of good stuff in there. We'll see. We'll see what happens. You ready to talk about some listener interactions? Let's talk about listener interactions. All right. Jake Support. Jake Support, by the way, has a great podcast, the um, Radio Camp Half-Blood. Oh, yeah. Which is great if you're interested in the Percy Jackson books, and uh, that's a good podcast to, to go and listen to, and they do a good job over there. But his question is, why do I hate Renarin? <laughs> it's a good question. It is a good question. I don't hate Renarin. He's definitely not my favorite character. He's interesting to me in this in this way. That he's sort of, sort of a foil for everybody else in Alethi society. Mm-hmm. And he, he seems on the face of it to be so sort of powerless, and yet and yet he's so obviously going to be so powerful. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's written to be liked. I think no, you yeah. know, he's definitely written as this character is on the outside of everyone else and knows it, but doesn't seem to be able to do anything. Mm-hmm. about it yeah i could see people being annoyed by him but mm-hmm. i don't i don't find him that way though mm-hmm. let's let's put it this way on the list of like characters i don't like there are several candidates mm-hmm. before i even get to consider renarin yeah madsen sparler says who needs a hug more right now town or teft gary Busey. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see do, 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 do. yeah i'm going with gary Busey. <laughs> but yeah. after him town is definitely a close second for sure i would I, agree with that i think I, teft needs a swift kick in the ass yeah so yeah. and a hug maybe empathy is important chad eric allgaier says hey where the herald women at Even, right <laughs> that's what you said right that's what i'm saying even if we may have seen Shalash already, there's four other female heralds who are still living in Roshar, according to the Stormfather. Think there's any chance we've already met them while they're in disguise? If I had to guess, I'd say we've already met two of them mm-hmm. other than Shalash. Uh, I couldn't, I'm totally just basing that off of this is what I'm gathering of like Brandon Sanderson's writing. Mm-hmm. I don't have any guesses. I'm just saying yeah. he's shown us three of them already. You're thinking, yeah. Yeah. But I don't, we'll find out 6,000 pages from now. Exactly. Yeah. There but are it, definitely some that we've seen that I know we've seen that you haven't picked up on. Yeah. Yeah. But it's going to be so cool when you figure it out. Uh, that's what you say. Um, Eric Allgaier also says, and where the H.E. double hockey sticks is Hoyd. Are we going to see him and Seth in this book? And if so, under what circumstances and which one first? That's a good point. I hadn't even realized that I was missing them so much. 
But now that you say it, I want to crawl on a corner and cry. <laughs> Katrina Knudsen says, I forgot to ask this question last section. The library sequence with Shalon and company catching the Midnight Mother felt like it was one proton pack shy of being a scene in Ghostbusters. Right. Good yes. point. Yes. Who would Shalon, Adolin, and Renarin be if they had to be cast as Ghostbusters? Oh, that's phenomenal. Uh, Eric Algar says this needs to have its own dedicated podcast. I, I might agree. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, Adolin is obviously Venkman. Okay. All right. I think I think Adolin is Winston. You think so? Yeah. I think Vatha is Winston. Okay, all right. I think uh, I mean clearly Renarin is Egon. Right, obviously. Yeah. I mean that's that's yeah, clear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm gonna have to say that um, uh, Shalon is Slimer. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> oh Lord. Theo Graham Brown says, I would like both of you to try and say Rock's real name. This is, it's like they listened to the podcast God, before we it, even said it, or they just Lord. know us. Okay. Okay. You go first. Numuhuku Makaki Ale Luminor. Numuhuku Makaki Ale Luminor. I did it better. Ta da! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and Eric Allgaier has a very funny diagram. I'm opening this up now for the first time. Paper, rock, scissors, (laughs) Spock, lizard. If you're not on the Facebook group page, get on there and check that out. It's quite funny. Theo says, Sanderson has a real thing for idioms not working across translation. But have you ever heard anyone translate an an idiom from their own language? It doesn't happen because by the time you're fluent enough to use them, you've already learned the new language ones. I basically just find this an irritating affectation. Oh, you airsick lowlanders. Uh, you know, I, well, and I think he's talking too about the, the scene with Evie and Dalinar talking and she uses a weird idiom. And he also mm-hmm. uses that, I think, as a way to, uh, for instance, Zahel uses idioms mm, that yeah, yeah. have to do with his home world. Yeah, absolutely. I think he thought it would be harder for people to figure that out. And really, I don't know how people did figure that out, that Zahel was, you know, um, a character from Warbreaker. But but pointing out that the idiom thing, I, I don't know. I don't even know how people figured that out. I think that might have been sort of a hint towards looking at people's idioms as being not indicators indicators of, of, of them yeah. not speaking that language. So if you have an Alethi mm-hmm. who uses weird idioms, maybe that's an indicator that they're a world hopper. Um, I, I agree with Theo. I, I'd like to hear somebody else's opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but as somebody who has learned a foreign language at the level where you're learning to speak it idiomatically, I agree with him. You don't really translate your idioms. In fact, we used to do it for fun. Just, you know, just we would we would say it for fun just to piss people off because it is so off-putting to say an idiom in another language. It's mm-hmm. so untranslatable that it just annoys people. Uh, and that's what I like to do, so I did it a lot. <laughs> 
when you spoke another language. Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I agree with him. I, I'd, I'd like to hear if somebody has somebody else has a contrary opinion. Anyone else who's bilingual, chime in. But I, I agree with him. I think it's. I think it's. I understand why writers do it. I don't find it that annoying, but I. It does sort of happen in the back of my head. Me going. You would just adopt the idioms in the language. Mm-hmm. Or I guess you would explain that it's an idiom. Or if there's an idiot, I don't know. I've had people who, for whom English was a second or third language, say there's a there's an saying in my language that doesn't translate to English, but mm-hmm. basically, it, you know, it says this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good, that would be a very interesting discussion. Chime in. Theo also says, I had the impression for some reason that the kingdom was pretty young as a unified thing when Gavilar was killed, but now we find out it was sorted 36 years ago. What say you? I guess I just didn't pay attention. Did that work for you or? I mean, I've had kind of, I've had kind of a hard time understanding the time frame. I actually felt like it was even less time than that. I don't, I don't feel like I've had a real good sense of of that. I mean, if it's 36 years old now, that would, I mean, that would make Dalinar like 18 years old, you know, when he's out there going around as the Blackthorn crushing skulls, which I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's right. Theo also says some discussion about this, but based on what we've been told about the Heralds thing, it just sounds ridiculous. You pick 10 guys to do a task because it's easier with 10 of you. But in this case, it turns out that only one of them has to fail to mess up. So in fact, one guy with an iron will can keep a desolation at bay for 4,498 years longer than 10 guys. No, I, I agree. I thought that was, they can share the burdens, but it only takes one of them to crack. Well, definitely a shit deal. Oh yeah. At the same time, we don't know what the alternatives were. <sighs> yeah. It's or a, who that deal was crafted by. Yeah. It's a weird one. I mean, it seems to me like that's a, you know, the authors of these letters were somehow involved. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, if it was like, this is a deal that was, that the Heralds designed as being a good plan, then, then yeah, that was stupid. It's but, a sh- yeah, it's a shitty plan. Yeah. You know, um, obviously someone else was involved in that. Yeah. He also says, follow up, any theories about what caused the desolations in the first place and made the need for this crazy oath pact? Is that going to be part of your theories? No, it's no, it's fucking nuts. Like, you know, it, it's just like the Wheel of Time and like, why do they, and I don't know if this has been answered in Wheel of Time, but like, why do they have this constant cycle of like the dragon reborn and like, I, you know, it's because it matches well with like our human mythology and history. And mm-hmm. so we like to hear it in the stories. So we make mm-hmm. up stories about it because it doesn't make sense in and of itself. Yeah. He says, Eric Allgaier points out something that was pretty important. Stormfather says, or what the Stormfather says means there's no apparent way for anybody on Roshar to affect when a desolation comes. The Ghostblood, Sons of Honor, Skybreakers said, I wouldn't know that, but surely, na- well, the Ghostbloods and Sons of Honor wouldn't know that, but surely Nail and the Skybreakers knew, my new metal band, by the way, uh, <laughs> they would know that, they would know no matter how long it's been. No, but the good point that 
the son, the whole sons of honor, like that whole, the whole purpose of that organization is pointless because the only thing that matters is what happens in damnation. Theo says, do we think Yasna is actually a big time evil? She wanted to assassinate the queen and the queen doesn't seem like a great person, but here her behavior is just dark and nasty. Is she working with the sons of honor? I mean, I kind of talked, we kind of talked about Yasna a little bit. Yeah. Definitely seems like her behavior here is getting darker. Yeah, for sure. I I wouldn't at all shock me if Yasna turns out to be at least a neutral force. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget also that when we found Yasna, she was sort of in the care of, for lack of a better word, Teravangian, Mm -hmm. who we know is, you know, a little bit batshit crazy. Uh, so, you know, and she would have had to come up from that area before she made her way to the Shattered Plain. I mean, there are, seems, yeah, there's enough reasons to be suspicious that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm definitely putting her in the neutral category. It seems interesting that the Ghostblood's letter did not mention the diagram. Yeah, right. They As mentioned a, the Sons of Honor. They mentioned the Skybreakers. Is it possible they don't know about the diagram or are they deliberately yeah. keeping that from Shalon? Because that would be a pretty big bomb for her to find out. It seems strange to me that they wouldn't know. Right. Theo says, if Lyft can control slash enter the visions, does that mean that it is something about her connection to the cognitive realm? Oh, snap. That's that a good idea. Yeah. would be a good idea. If so, does that mean Yasna can too, but she's hiding the fact? Back to her being evil. Now, I think Lyft has a a completely and entirely unique connection to the cognitive realm. Like Yasna can pop in there like an else caller, but mm-hmm. Lyft is connected to the cognitive realm at all times, even when she is physically not there. Well, yeah, which makes sense with her ability to sort of slide around and di- you know disobey the laws of mm-hmm. gravity, and mm-hmm. it sort of makes sense. Um, but no, I, I agree. I think that's a good point. <laughs> Theo says the Duchess should read out loud the full synopsis of "I Dare You," <laughs> the book that has been advertised to her. So a little while back on the Facebook group page, I posed a question to the group because my Kindle is horny, y'all. It's thirsty. (laughs) My Kindle Unlimited always is trying to sell me these romance novels. So we've been going back and forth a little bit about this really funny advertisement that I was given. He took off her glasses and was shocked to find that she was beautiful. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Brian McClure says, what do you think caused the recreants? Is that in your predictions? No. 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 no nothing yet? Okay. Uh, oh, no, no. Actually, I it just came to me. Oh, okay. Put it in there. I'm, I'll be, you go ahead. I'll be typing out my, my prediction. Well, he also wants to know uh, two other predictions. Who do you think has the 10th honor blade? And do you think race and odium are the same person? So I definitely don't think that race and odium are the same person. Mm-hmm. I'm sticking to my sort of, I think there's a hierarchy of multiple mm-hmm. levels of, of these sorts of, of creatures. And I think uh, of, of these sort of different levels of 
deities mm-hmm. uh, that certain individuals are able to use these metaphysical powers to transcend sort of normal life and death and mm-hmm. um, and they over time they become you know powerful enough to become things like honor or like mm-hmm. odium and then but then I think they fall underneath the level of people like race and Iona who have been you know, who are on another level above them and mm-hmm. have been sort of in the divinity class for a lot longer. And then uh, even further above them are the actual sort of true initial creator gods, you know? Um, so, so no, I, I don't, I could see, I could certainly, certainly could be wrong about that, mm-hmm. but I, I'm going to say at this point that no, I don't think they're the same. Uh, and town was, Town showed up at this one sort of outpost somewhere, and he had his honor blade. Yes. And then by the time we saw him next with Amaram, mm-hmm. he had a different shard blade. Yes. So we know that there was somebody who brought him to uh, one of Amaram's trusted minions mm-hmm. brought him Kevin uh, brought him to <laughs> to Amaram but we I don't recall it's probably out there but I just I don't recall and I didn't I uh, didn't research it it'd be interesting to note if when he arrived if there was an observation of whether or not he had he did not so okay so before he even made it to Amaram yes so that means that Kevin, uh, Kevin. could potentially be the one or anybody else at that outpost or anywhere else along he went the to colonar he went to colonar mm-hmm. mm. and there's a lot of strange things going on in colonar mm-hmm. that's interesting mm-hmm. in fact the storm father is blind to colonar he cannot it's like a dark spot to him yeah well i'm gonna say it's in colonar but i i'm gonna say the queen has it mm, good call so Brian McClure has a couple of questions about the Snapters, as uh, so we talked about them mm. a little bit, but he wants to know, um, A, if if you have figured out who the author of the original letter is, and what thoughts you have on their reply letters so far. Oh, I haven't thought about it at that level. No. I, I would have to go back and read that again. I haven't really, right. been, I haven't really been thinking about it. Um, I've just, because again... It's a mental block in my brain, these little like snapters. Like mm-hmm. I just read the chapter. Right. Like, you just have enough to uh, deal with. In fact, this time sort of um, that it, this this section was the first time I've ever highlighted anything in a snapter. Mm-hmm. Like when I was like, wait a minute, two shards in one place. Like mm-hmm. I don't even normally read them that close. I'm, I read them inconsistently. And it's only when we're going back and talking about this that I'm like, wait a minute, there's a snapter. I should probably put all that together and read it. So I don't remember the first letter. Well, and you're, it's, the names are becoming more and more familiar to you. And I think that that will continue. Things will continue to click as you hear this stuff over and over. Yeah, I could probably go back and read it now and maybe I'd be able to figure it out. But I definitely haven't done the homework. Maybe next episode we will get more into that. Brian McClure's um, finally asks the Duke and du- Duke and Duchess. Do you think Sanderson will tell us what the first gem is in Stormlight, or is he saving it for a different series? 
I mean, I can't answer that. No. I don't even know what, quote, first gem, unquote, is. Um, I, I do think we're going to hear about it in Stormlight. I could be wrong. I hope I'm not. But I do. Eric Allgaier says, does the new No Pants podcast studio space have a commemorative plaque near the entrance yet, or does that set the wrong tone uh, for a house full of teen and preteen children? <laughs> Hell no, we are not putting a sign in, in this basement that says No Pants podcast. No, no. We, we want extra pants going on. No, in fact, I've got a line of like parachute pants that come down the, down the stairs in. <laughs> Like wear these extra extra pants and gloves. <laughs> extra pants. Everyone down here will wear extra pants and gloves who are <laughs> under the age of twenty one. Exactly. Your brains are not fully developed yet. You gotta be twenty five before you can take the gloves off. All the pants down here. <laughs> we are we are uh I would say we are ninety percent of the way. There maybe eighty percent of the way there with the uh, studio space. Yes. Coming along. It's coming along, yeah. Folks noted that there were no issues with Echo, which is good. Very I was glad, good. Glad to hear that. I noticed, a, I mean, a tiny little bit of it, mm-hmm. but only, but I don't think it would have come through in the recording. Mm-hmm. So let's hope that continues. Mm-hmm. So did you have a favorite quote from this section? Figures. <laughs> Gallatin lays yeah. out, you know, when they're all sitting there, he's like, so you mean to tell me... That the radiants are the, the heralds uh-huh. of these guys, and, and we have to blah, 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 and we're basically screwed. Figures. Like that's, <laughs> to me, that's the quote. I mean, Lyft talking about Dalinar's butt was my, <laughs> my favorite. You should have a flat ass. <laughs> His next question is, can the Oath Pact be reforged? I'm going to say, I hope not. Right, because that was a shit deal. Because that's a shit deal. Like, it doesn't seem like... The safety of an entire, you know, planet should be dependent upon 10 dudes constantly being tortured. Brian asks, what did you think of all the point of view chapters from the members of Bridge 4? Did you feel like that slowed down the storytelling? I don't think so. I, th- I felt like it was good to get the perspective of Rock mm-hmm. um, and to get the perspective of Teft. I don't, unless they're going to take on much more pivotal roles, I don't think I would want to con to stay there but i think the occasional point of view chapter to sort of flesh that out is fine i don't i don't think it slowed it down mm-hmm. um he also asks is honor's death connected to the breaking of the oath pact i mean it's hard to say no we don't have enough evidence that seems to be uh i mean seems to be the most the only kind of other point of evidence we have mm-hmm. that kind of lines up with the time frame um, but I don't feel like I have enough information to make that. Mm-hmm. Brian Kemper showed us his really groovy new Bondsmith tattoo. Mm-hmm. It's pretty groovy. And then Zachary Kirchen says, I'd love to know uh, Liz's grading scale on Goodreads. Are her five stars only reserved for the best of the best, or does she hand them out freely? So I, this question popped up before I realized that it was on the... On the question interaction thread? on yeah, the question yeah. thread, and I, mm. I went ahead and answered it because I was really excited. Um, but but I said in there what's interesting, and then I, I went and stalked my own Goodreads profile <laughs> and looked at all my reviews. And I had said in the thread that I don't think I ever leave one or two star reviews because I am too much of a people pleaser and I'm afraid. <laughs> so if I don't like a book, I just don't 
review it at all, but I realized I was wrong. I have left a two-star review. Oh, interesting. But I left it for Stephen King's Song of Susanna, which I guess I figured Stephen King could handle it. (laughs) He could handle my two-star review. I don't think he's sweating it. I didn't like that book. I, I did not even finish it. I know that a lot of you disagree with me, but that's, you know, that was just my opinion. Not crazy about it, but that was just kind of interesting. I went down the rabbit hole of my own reviews. But in your thread, you kind of break down your Yeah, your so I, I do, t- I yeah, do yeah. put in that thread kind of my, my rating system of... I think it's interesting that you and I rate books very differently. How so? Well, so I think your default is like a four or five. I would say my default is a three or a four. Really? Okay, my know? default is a three. So for yeah. me, a three is like pretty good. I enjoyed, you know, yeah, but had some problems, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a four is like, this was great. Uh, I'm definitely going to read it the rest of the series. And a five is like, I, you know, I'm obsessed with this book. I, I'm, I, I okay. want to buy a copy of it. So maybe our grading scales aren't that different. It's just you've read a lot more really good books than I have. Because I give out, I think I've only given out like four or five five star reviews. Yeah, I mean, I percentage wise, there's there are four or five series probably mm-hmm. that I mostly give out five stars to, but um, percentage wise are probably about the same. I I do just I, I read a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. I read a lot of books. I only know two books off the top of my head that I gave five-star reviews to. What were those? Uh, um, Wise Man's Fear mm-hmm. and Storm of Swords. Hmm. I think, I'm pretty sure I gave, I'm, I'm at almost 100% certain I gave those five-star reviews. I'm sure I've given out other ones and I just can't think of what they are. Mm-hmm. All right, are you ready to review... Books that we haven't read? Books we haven't read? Yes. All right. I'm ready. Do you have a book for me? I do. I do have a book for you. So tonight, Elizabeth is going to review the amazing book by Frank Herbert, God Emperor of Dune. Oh, yes. Now, Liz. Classic. Have you read God Emperor of Dune? I have not. (laughs) Why don't you tell us a little bit about... Why don't you tell us what it's about? Well, I, I have not read God Emperor of Dune, but I, I know that it is about this sandy bitch <laughs> on a planet called Dune. And uh, he's not just the emperor, he's also the God Emperor. It doesn't make him any less of a sandy bitch, though. Mm, okay. Because that's a sandy planet. I know this from the movie posters. (laughs) What did you think of Leto II? You know, I'd say he was a definite downgrade from Leto I. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting, interesting. Okay. But way better than Leto III. I I mean, I think that's factually correct. I don't... (laughs) I don't think that can be denied, so... (laughs) Um, and how did you feel about uh, how did you feel about Duncan Idaho in this book? You know, this might be a little bit unfair of a books we haven't read because 
I have read the original Dune, and Duncan Idaho is absolutely one of my all-time favorite yeah, yeah. characters. If our kids ever did talk us into a dog, it would be a dog named Duncan Idaho. <laughs> I'm just saying that's already my dog name picked out. Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, his portrayal in this book, I, I didn't like it as much as the original Dune. Mm, I felt okay. like, you know. What do you think about um, the way Frank Herbert sort of lays out the concept of omnipotence as it relates to the golden, uh, the golden path and what that means for a ruler's responsibility? I, I mean, I think the way he handled it was complete shit, to be honest. Yeah. So and and how did the god uh, the god emperor die? Um, he the god emperor died uh, choking on a ham sandwich. Like, <laughs> and that might have happened somewhere in that whole sequence. <laughs> I, I can't can't deny it. All right. Well, this has been books that we haven't read. How many stars would you give God Emperor of Dune? <laughs> Two stars. Two stars. All right. Frank Herbert can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> His son can't. <laughs> All right, so are you ready for predictions? Yes. All right, I have some predictions. Okay. Okay. Prediction the first. We're going straight in, full on tinfoil. All right. Renarin is a herald. Okay. That is very tinfoily. Extremely tinfoily. Before all is said and done, Rock's going to kill a bitch. Okay. Somebody's going to die at Rock's hands. All right, now we get into sort of uh, some of my theories here. I think that every soul that gets killed by a shard blade, the little smoke that goes up, mm-hmm. goes up to damnation, which the Voran religion is telling you is the Tranquilin Halls, but really it's damnation. Okay. And ends up torturing one of the heralds. Okay. So every time somebody gets killed by a shard blade, they're just making the next desolation worse. Mm, I think theory. the wreck... I think the recreance is caused when the Radiants realized that the shard blades that they were wielding was just causing the Heralds to get tortured more and more and, and just further adding enemies to, uh, to, the, to the enemy's cause. Mm-hmm. So I think they figured that out and they were like, we can't continue to kill people with shard blades. This is, you know, this is ultimately not productive. And I think that uh, the person in Amaram's army who bonded a spren mm-hmm. was Kaladin's little brother. Those are my predictions. All right, anything else? No. All right, you can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. You can find us on uh, Facebook at the Duke and Duchess or on our Facebook group page uh, by going to facebook.com slash group slash the DND group. You can find us on all the other social media, the Goodreads, the Reddits, uh, the Instagrams of the world, just by searching for the Duke and Duchess podcast. Please uh, come vote uh, and retweet our tweets so we can become the official Duke and Duchess of Bel Air. Make sure you find that and retweet it. Also, uh, please go out and read uh, Gordon Ross's article on the five fantasy authors to read while waiting for Patrick Rothfuss' Doors of Stone. Uh, and if anybody else has anything else they'd like to contribute uh, to the podcast website, they can reach out to us. Uh, we will certainly take that into consideration. Uh, thank you all so much. We enjoy doing this, and we'll see you again in episode 108. Good night, everybody. Good night.